Greetings. Pastor Lance sent me a big page of instruction. <laughs> he said, normally I ask a preacher to come in, so just bring a sermon, any, bring your choice of sermons. But he has begun a series of 22 sermons from the Gospel of Matthew, which deal with this congregation making an impact on the world. So he asked me to take the second sermon, which is from uh, Matthew chapter 3. And it's my privilege to do that. He gave me the title, John the Baptist Prepares the Way. And he gave me the text, and he gave me some goals for that. Now, if you need a Bible, they're coming around with Bibles. I'd like for you to take one of those. And open your Bible to the blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So just turn to that page. I'm, I'm looking at yours. It's usually a blank page. America celebrated our anniversary last weekend. 232 years America has been here. And when you put that into decades, we've survived for 24 decades. During five centuries, two millennia, we overcame wars and tyrants and storms and plagues and depressions and booms and slavery and segregation, as well as the love and hatred of surrounding countries. And I'd like to ask you, who stands out as the most prominent, important American of those 232 years? If we were to build a, put another monument by Mount Rushmore and just have the face of the most important American who would it be? Give me some give me some feedback. Who? Lincoln? Well, Lincoln's already there, but we might have one just for him. I come from the land of Lincoln, so I'm proud of Lincoln. I grew up a mile and a half from where his folks lived in Illinois. Billy Graham. <laughs> okay. Who else? Reagan. <laughs> Mother Teresa. She's not an American. We think of her uh, as that way, don't we? Billy Graham? Any, how about, uh, how about who? Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison? <laughs> well, anyway, as, as you have this Bible, if you have your Bible open, to the left of this page is the Old Testament, 39 books, and to the right of it is our, the New Testament, 27 books. Who was the most important person from the Old Testament? Now we start with, there's Adam. He got us all in trouble. And then there's Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then we come down, there's David. Come down all the way to Malachi. And who is the most important person of the Old Testament? Whose name would you write on this blank page? Who? John the Baptist? Well, he's not Old Testament. How about Elijah? What else was the other one? Abraham. Abraham was God's favorite. Joseph. So there are plenty of contenders for it. I believe the most important person of the Old Testament was Elijah. And Jesus and the writers of the New Testament agree because Jesus regarded John the Baptist as being, what, the second coming of Elijah. He was treated like Elijah. 
Jesus said of John the Baptist, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John. So when he, he looks to the Old Testament, he says, he puts John in that category and said he is the greatest. And the ministry of John focused on two goals. And if you have, have the little worksheet, he came to fulfill former prophecy. Beginning with Isaiah, it was foretold the coming of Elijah. And he came to fulfill former prophecy and to foretell future prophecy. And he also wanted to warn those who were unprepared for what was about to happen and to assure those who were prepared to tell them the time has come. Join me in a moment of prayer. Dear God, we ask that you would touch us with your spirit, that you would open our minds to understanding complex theology, the, the strategies of, of your of the divine through the centuries. Please help us. Please touch our hearts that we will be open to one another and loving and generous and concerned for others. And please open our imagination to possibilities and ways that we can impact the world for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, well, this passage, 1 through 17, unfolds in four steps. So we're going to go a step at a time. And the first step, uh, then came John in verses 1 to 6. Matthew 3, 1 to 6. In those days, John the Baptist appeared, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was the one the prophet Isaiah was referring to when he said, He is a voice calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, John had clothing made of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region along the Jordan began flocking to him, being baptized by him in the Jordan River while they confessed their sins. John the Baptist was so significant. All four Gospels discuss him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John discuss John the Baptist. And it's impossible to read this and not recognize John's connection with Elijah. Now, when they asked John, are you Elijah, he said no. Now, physically, he wasn't. But when they asked Jesus, is he Elijah, Jesus said yes. He was the fulfillment of that prophecy that Elijah would return. And Matthew has a, I think it's a little bit of fun with this text. It's what we call a fused text. He took the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, but he, he mingled it with Malachi. If you go back, this last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Verse 1, Malachi said, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And in Malachi 4, 5, just as he closes the book, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So Matthew took a little bit of Malachi and a little bit of Isaiah, two Old Testament passages, and crafted, created a New Testament text, a fused text. John the Baptist ended five centuries of, of prophetic silence. There were 500 years before John the Baptist when there were no prophets in Israel. Now, up until Malachi, uh, Israel was uneasy with its prophets. They persecuted them. They didn't like what they had to say. They sometimes killed them. 
And so, but at least God was communicating with Israel. So they, they had prophets until 433 B.C. And Malachi penned his book, completed his prophecy, and put down his pen. And God was silent from Malachi to John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came, stood in the wilderness and said, Repent, they said, God's speaking to us again. It was like, here's Malachi, and here's 500 years, and John brought it all together. This, this is quite, a, quite a, a reunion. Now, remember, John the Baptist didn't, pardon me, Elijah didn't die. He was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And so for hundreds of years they wondered, will he return in a whirlwind? Will he, will he show up that chariot of fire in the whirlwind? Will, will he return in, in person? Well, centuries later, John appeared, and he was down in Elijah's old territory, down by the Jordan. And he looked like Elijah, and he acted like Elijah, and he talked like Elijah. And Israel rejoiced, and people of faith said, God is speaking to us again. And they hurried down to hear him. And, and I'm especially taken with what John, John was like, his clothing and his diet. It said he wore a, a cloak of camel hair. And for those of us who think about, remember the old saints used to go out in the wilderness and wear a hair shirt just to just make life miserable for them. Have any of you worn anything made of camel hair? It's you could you could the baby would sleep on camel hair. It's like cashmere. I, my mother-in-law gave me a camel hair coat, and I thank her for it. You put that on, and it's just so wonderfully soft and luxurious. And it says he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, grasshoppers were kosher for Israel. They couldn't eat certain animals, but they could eat all the grasshoppers and locusts they wanted. So we had this image of John the Baptist, what, dipping locusts and honey. And, and uh, I, I thought about that. So I began to do a little research on it, and I was in... I was in Israel walking through Jerusalem with a, an Arab guide, Arab Christian. He pointed out this tree and said, come over, let me show you this tree. And it was a nice looking tree, but it had these big, long, black looking fingers hanging over it. Big, long bean pod things. And he said, pull off one of those. And I did. He said, uh, shell it out. And I shelled it out. And there were like great big black beans. And he said, eat one. All right, put it in my mouth. Chocolate. Chocolate. He said, we call this tree locust, and the fruit of the locust tree is locust. You call it carob. I think old John was... <laughs> down there eating chocolate and honey and wearing his camel hair coat. Life was hard for him. <laughs> but... So he was like Elijah, but he was unlike Elijah. And centuries later, uh, unlike John, Elijah, John baptized people. Elijah didn't baptize anybody. The Jews, up until, uh, oh, di didn't baptize. So I asked the question, where did this baptism come from? And the um, remember the temple, Solomon built the temple about 960 B.C., and the temple existed, and it was where the people went to worship. 
And in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. People were taken off into captivity of Babylon. They were down, they were up there 70 years. We now call that Iraq. They were 70 years, and they were cut off. They didn't have a temple. Uh, the priesthood was helpless because you had to have a temple for them to function. And so the, how do we worship? So they created the, the synagogue. And the synagogue, word synagogue means come together, call together. And the synagogue was a place for uh, Torah, study of Scripture. It's a place of tefillah, prayer, and Shema, statement of faith, a renewal of faith. Every, uh, always the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. And baptism. The synagogue was the place where they baptized. And the synagogues had a pool. It was each synagogue would have a what they called a mikvah. And when Sabbath came, they would go down to the to the synagogue and they would dip themselves in the sacred pool. And they still do this. If you visit uh, synagogues in, in America, they will have a sacred pool. When I was uh, studying in Bible college in Atlanta, Georgia, I was assigned to talk about the origins of baptism. And I. I knew that the Jews did baptize, especially John the Baptist baptized. So I was brash, 19-year-old, and I called the rabbi of the biggest synagogue in, in Georgia, Atlanta, uh, synagogue in Atlanta. And he came on the phone, and, and I began to ask him about this, and he was so gracious. And I said, when did the Jewish people begin to baptize? And he said, we don't know. But he said, when we, were, we, when we came back from Babylon, we brought baptism with us. And so for 400 years before John the Baptist, the Jews had been baptizing this thing. of. And if, you, if uh, the archaeologists will tell you that if you get on the Temple Mount, as you go up where the, the temple was, there are all kind of, everywhere you'll find a mikvah. They call it mikvot, the plural. There are these pools all around. The people would go down, they'd dip themselves, then they'd go up and they would worship God in the temple. So people of faith were coming to John the Baptist, not for healing, not for teaching, not for miracles, but to be forgiven. And there was a faithful remnant in Israel. Sometimes they refer to them as the poor. Blessed are the poor. And they yearned, they, they believed God was going to do something. Elijah was going to return, and Messiah was going to follow Elijah. And they came from all over, and John prepared them for the future. That's, that's a wonderful insight into uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, this impact that he had. Well, we move to the second step, and John said he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming. Now, let me explain something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People don't know, think they're like the Republicans and the Democrats. And in, in some ways they were, I guess. They were always at odds. But the Sadducees were all Levites. They were all of the tribe of Levi, which meant they were priests. And the only people who could function in the temple were the priests. If you had a, going to make a sacrifice, you want to bring an offering, you wanted to give God a gift of money, oil, grain, anything, you had to bring it to a priest who would offer it for you. Well, John the Baptist was a Levite. His father was a Levite priest, and John could be doing business in the temple up in Jerusalem. 
Well, these Sadducees were suspicious of him. What's he doing down here in the in down this Dead Sea area in the Jordan River when he when he could be up here doing business with us? And all of the this thing he's preaching about repentance reminded me of some of our 2008 political candidates who've been embarrassed by preachers. <laughs> they were embarrassed by John the Baptist. And he, he claimed to speak for God, and that troubled them. Well, the Pharisees were not priests. They were lay people. And so they controlled the synagogues. <clears throat> Levites controlled the temple. Pharisees controlled the synagogues. They were suspicious of everyone. They were even suspicious of each other. But they were suspicious as to this renegade down in the wilderness baptizing all kinds of indecent people. But both of these groups believed they were superior to the rest of the world because they descended from Father Abraham. Well, John had a surprise for them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the, fruit, at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I went to church one night, and they asked an old gentleman to close us with prayer. And he said, Lord, said, Lord baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He said, well, I get out of here. And the, the fire was for the wicked. The Holy Spirit was for, for the, the righteous. So... We would call John's ministry a revival. And one of the interesting features of America, the United States, we have had a, we have these waves of revival that sweeps through uh, the nation. Sometimes it will be in the East or in the West. Sometimes it's a nationwide revival, a renewal of faith. And the, uh, during colonial times it took place, it was an intellectual revival on the campuses of Yale and Princeton and the other universities. And in the 19th century, it happened in the 1801, it was in the wilds of Kentucky, a place called uh, the, uh, the Cane Ridge Revival. 20,000, 30,000 people went down there in the middle of nowhere and camped out most of the summer, and they were baptizing and having a huge revival, and all kinds of religious groups came out of that. And, you know, faithful people of faith, And in the, the 20th century, there, this revival broke out on the streets of L.A. And we've had a, a number of revivals come through America. We, not only Billy Graham, but uh, Oral Roberts and others. Who just we've, we've benefited from, from revivals. So in the fruit of revival, John is true to his mission. He's the way maker. Kind of like the... Uh, the front man when the president comes or uh, when the king is going somewhere they get all the people out so they stand by the road and, and cheer and they fix the roads and they knock the low 
the high places down and raised up the low places to make the, the way of the, of the king uh, so that it's prepared. And he, he's, John realized there was one more important than himself who was coming. And John's ministry had an impact. And it was a startling impact. This church is committed to God's plan of world impact. And you're going to hear a, a lot about it in another 20 sermons. And what do we mean by impact? In July 1994, the, there was a comet hit the planet Jupiter. It was called the Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. Others called it the String of Pearls Comet. And as it was coming in, it began to break up. And comet after comet s- struck Jupiter, and large quantities of dusty debris entered the Jovian atmosphere. And we could see that from the planet Earth quite well through our telescopes. And it it struck us with awe and with fear. One of those comets, the smallest of those comets, would have annihilated life on Earth. And we wonder, could it happen to our home planet? You know, that's that's an impact. John's preaching made an impact down by the Jordan River. And then that was followed by Jesus with his ministry and death and burial and resurrection, which was followed by the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was followed by the gospel spreading from the Jews to the Gentiles and out into the rest of the world. This impact after impact after impact. And it brings us to our third step. Third step of this passage is, then came Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You you might not know, but John's mother and Jesus' mother were probably cousins. An angel had come to to John's aged parents. They were were grandparents, or at least old enough to be grandparents, and foretold that they would have a child named John who would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And the angel told, told them, said, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's in Luke 1, 16 to 17. So here, Jesus was related to John. And it also tells us in Luke that Jesus and John met before they were born. Mary was carrying Jesus, and she went to see her cousin Elizabeth, who was carrying John. And Elizabeth said, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That makes me shiver. Now, being a man, I've never felt a baby move in myself. But this baby didn't just move. He leaped when he heard that Jesus was here. So imagine what it was like for John. 
about 30 years later, when he he's down here doing his work and baptizing these people and proclaiming his prophecy when Jesus appeared. And what emotions surged through him. What thoughts came to him. I suspect that suddenly he had tunnel vision. And everything and everyone else faded. And all he saw was Jesus standing in line with all these sinners. Here I am, soaking wet, dressed like a madman, hair askew, harsh words on my lips, and the Lord appears. He walked 70 miles to get here. His feet are dirty. He came to me. Jesus shows up when you least expect him. He still does. And it always causes a crisis for somebody. We could break up into small groups right now, groups of three or four, and have each of you share how Jesus appeared, arrived for you. And that's a crisis. We expect him in church. He's here. But you don't expect him after a nightmare. You don't expect him in a combat zone during a firefight. You don't expect him in the eyes of a beggar who's at the stop sign saying, please help me. You don't expect him in the face of of a baby. And Jesus has a way of showing up when we are at our worst. When we think we've escaped him, we might just have said, I deny that he even existed, and Jesus shows up. And when he comes, he'll ask you to do something, something you don't want to do. But his argument will be like it was to John. Let it be so for now. There's an old song we don't sing much. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. And he's just the same as his lovely name. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find him. And you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. I'd do anything for Jesus. I'd wash his feet, run his errands, drive his car. Give him money, even my life. But what if he asked me to baptize him? John wanted to be baptized by Jesus, but he couldn't say no. Jesus said, let it be so for now. Which brings us to step four in this text. The divine spoke. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, Christian theology is unique among all religions. Jews and Muslims and others uh, have difficulty with us because we believe in the three-in-one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of Jesus is the only place in Scripture where all three of the three-in-one are perceived by the human senses. You can see Jesus 
coming out of the water. You can see the spirit descending. It looked like a dove. And you can hear the voice of God. And at this moment, John's ministry of preparation was validated by God. Now, remember, he focused on two goals, to fulfill prophecy and to foretell prophecy. But he came to warn those who were unprepared and to assure those who were prepared. There was a major study done in America, concluded in June, and a study of religion in America. And it served 35,000 people across America were surveyed, and it was discussed in the SACB and in the Los Angeles Times. got my attention because the Sacramento Bee said, this was the headline, Californians are found to be less likely to worship. And the Los Angeles Times said, Californians are less religious than the rest of the nation. And the researchers were surprised that by the large number of, of Californians who have uh, a non-dogmatic view of religion. Now, dog, being dogmatic is one thing. You can be, you can be stupid about it. Uh, there are some people who are so narrow-minded they only need one eyebrow. We're not, when we say being dogmatic, this is something we hold as true. We hold as a matter of faith, and we're not going to surrender that. And we're not, we're not narrow-minded, but we're definite about it. We're definite about there is a God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus can forgive sins. But th this article went on to say there's, there's a growing tolerance of other religions. Now, that can be good. Or it says it may just be a lack of knowledge of their own beliefs. They don't know what to believe. Then they said Californians can hold contradictory beliefs and not be bothered by it. And they can take Christianity and a little bit of New Age and a little bit of what, Zen and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they just believe all these things and not be bothered by it. Said, however, Californians have a strong belief in an afterlife. Very many of them, most of them believe in an afterlife, but very few believe in hell. Compared California to the rest of the nation, said 71% of Americans strongly believe in the existence of God, but only 62% in California. Said Californians are more likely to believe the scriptures were produced by man rather than God, to pray less, and only 33% of Californians attend religious services once a week. Now, this is the one that I saved until last. California leads the trend of generating new religions and sending them off to the rest of the country. <laughs> I have a cartoon I like to use in class. It's a spaceship circling the earth, a little green men in it. And I, evidently they're asking, where are we going to land? And one of them says, any place but California. <laughs> Last time we landed there, we started four new religions. <laughs> but these statistics, as I was looking at them, they don't represent Bridgeway Christian Church. Uh, John the Baptist wouldn't be well accepted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in California. But John would be welcome here, wouldn't he? John would come here and be surrounded by faith, and we'd let him preach and rejoice it.
And we are dogmatic about God's statement. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We believe Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And he gives us pleasure. We, we won't compromise on this. Because we want to impact our world for Christ. And we begin with this truth. So as we come down, there's some issues I want you to consider. I want you to appreciate God's strategy for creation, from creation to the coming of Christ. How he has impacted the world again and again with revival. And John the Baptist was a major player and a model for us. And John just might walk up to you when you get to heaven. I want to look him up. And I told someone, when I get to heaven, I want to find out where Jesus is and sit there about about a million years. Then I'm going to go look up some people. And John the Baptist is one I want to meet. But suppose John walked up to you and asked, how did I impact you in your Christian life? Well, you need to identify your mission. And some people know their mission from the beginning. John knew his mission from the womb. Moses didn't know his mission until his 80s. Nor did Abraham know his mission until he was in his 80s. So it may come late, it may come early. But identify your mission, and when you understand it, don't be afraid. If it's your mission, God will be with you. And I want you to be like John, that you would warn others who are unprepared for the future. We tend just to drift through life and take in life as it comes, but... We need to prepare others, especially those whom we love. And then expect what we call crises, persecution. And those, those problems are probably opportunities. We can be creative and figure out ways to, to use those to impact the world for Christ. And there may be some of you here who have heard a lot of sermons, but as yet you've never given yourself to Jesus. We have a, a low-impact way for you, you to give that further consideration. There's a prayer group that we'll meet over here after we're finished. And if you'd like to come over there uh, into that group, and no one will intimidate you. They'll pray for you, whatever you want. But you might have some questions about what does it mean for me to give myself to Jesus Christ. So with that, I ask you to join me again in prayer. We come to you, God. You have opened our minds to understanding. May we be able to retain this, and may we be able to learn more and understand more about world impact as time goes by. And you've opened our hearts to one another in love and in generosity, that we are tolerant of people who don't know the truth, and we are committed to being your being obedient to you. And you have opened our imagination. And this is just the beginning. Please continue to bless us in these ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.